Hi, and welcome to this episode of Talking Migration, this time from the British International Studies Association, BSAS, annual conference. I'm Clara Sandlind, and Talking Migration is supported by the Centre for Research in the Social Sciences at the University of Huddersfield. So this episode was recorded at, in Edinburgh at the BSA annual conference, just before the EU referendum. We will be listening to a short version of one of the panels. The panel Refugees in Europe, Rights, Borders and Shared Responsibility included papers by Kelly Staples at the University of Leicester, James Souter at the University of Leeds and Simon McMahon at Coventry University. We'll be hearing a short summary of their interesting research, which will provide a novel and different perspective on the refugee crisis, as well as a general discussion on the refugee crisis in Europe. First up was James Souter and his paper, Good International Citizenship and the Responsibility to Protect Refugees. So my paper is entitled um, Good International Citizenship and Special Responsibilities to Protect um, Refugees. And the starting point of the paper was the concept of good international citizenship, which is a concept that's found within um, English school international relations theory, which basically makes an analogy with um, individual citizens to say that states um, can also behave as um, good citizens within an international society um, of states. Um, now, good international citizenship in the literature um, that's developed um, by people such as Andrew Linklater and Tim Dunn um, and Nicholas Wheeler, they've implicitly seen good international citizenship as, as more or less being a matter of um, general duties um, that are shared by all members of international society. And they've basically largely restricted their focus to um, matters of foreign policy, so for example, um, humanitarian intervention. Um, and what I've tried to do in the paper is to show um, that it's not just general duties and foreign policy that matters for good international citizenship, it's also um, special responsibilities and domestic practices um, such as asylum and um, refugee resettlement. So. I tried to make that argument by um, kind of pointing to three links between good international citizenship and um, refugee protection. So the first link was um, following the political theorist um, David Owen, um, the, ar the argument that asylum can function as a way of repairing the legitimacy um, of international society. So the basic idea is that um, international society is only legitimate insofar as it protects the basic human rights um, of the world's population. Um, when refugees are created, that legitimacy is ruptured and asylum is a, is a way in which this um, legitimacy can be um, re-established. So that was one argument and the one that I looked at most briefly. Um, the second link that I explored was um, the idea that asylum can in some ways be seen as an alternative to um, military intervention. Um, where intervention is either um, politically impossible because consensus can't be reached on it, if it's um, imprudent and doesn't stand a chance of, um, of success, or if it involves moral costs that are just too high, um, such as um, civilian casualties. Now, in the good international citizenship literature, they've strongly focused on humanitarian intervention, but there's recognition within... Um, this literature that there's also a need to secure consensus internationally for um, intervention which creates a dilemma um, and we've seen this in real life in, in um, the Syria crisis where Russia and China um, have refused to consent to um, collective action against the Assad um, regime. Um, 
and at this point in the paper I've also um, broadened out the discussion a little bit to talk about the responsibility to protect or um, R2P um, which is a political agreement um, that all, sti all states signed up to in 2005 um, basically agreeing that they have a responsibility to respond to um, mass atrocity crimes and I identified a parallel between the assumptions of the good international citizenship literature and um, the way R2P is framed in that R2P is also seen as a foreign policy issue um, even though there's quite an obvious link to asylum given that asylum is a pretty obvious way in which um, uh, you can protect people from um, mass atrocities and the last um, link that I explored was um, asylum as a form of reparation, so where um, humanitarian intervention um, goes wrong and creates uh, refugees as it's very often going to do, um, then it seems to me that good international citizenship should involve um, some kind of obligations to those um, refugees that you've um, created. So I guess recent examples would be um, Iraqi refugees generated since the 2003 um, invasion, um, the links between that invasion and the emergence of ISIS, um, which has then caused another displacement crisis in the, in the last few years. Um, and I try to show that um, these kind of reparative duties are, are relevant to good international citizenship because <clears throat> they create not only um, humanitarian issues for the refugees affected, but also matters of fairness between states. So if um, if a state refuses to recognise um, its reparative obligations to refugees, then it's inevitably going to be other states who are often not responsible for producing those refugees that are going to end up protecting them. And I try to argue that that can be a kind of interstate injustice that needs to be um, rectified. So those are the three links that I've made. Huh. So. So I take it you don't think that current European states, for example, are being good international citizens? No, definitely not. No. <laughs> yeah. um, Is there any state that comes closer? Um, I, I guess the closest would be um, Germany in its willingness to kind of um, unilaterally make up for the, you know, the limited commitments of other states around, around them. Um, but even then that was kind of short-lived what was, you know, its subsequent border closure and, and so on. Um, so, I mean, I guess in some respects the UK has acted as a good international citizen in the very limited respect of um, humanitarian aid, you know, so that's, that is, a, is another important part of good international citizenship, but um, on my account they've fallen way short. Um, given the very small numbers of, of refugees that they've admitted. Mm. I, I have a question. Um, so, is Turkey a good citizen in international relations? Uh, it's a difficult one because, I mean, in the literature, good international citizenship is basically restricted to to Western states. Um, so, I guess one consequence of um, of this framework is that um, we should start using the term good international citizenship not just in that narrow context but also given the fact that the vast majority of refugees are hosted by um, states outside of outside of the West then we should see those as candidates for good international um, citizenship um, as well. Um, I mean in terms of their um, the kind of tolerance and hospitality to much larger numbers than Europe has managed they're arguably 
you know, more in line with good international citizenship than, say, the UK is, but then obviously there's problems with conditions for um, asylum seekers within Turkey. There's also, you know, concerns about the possibility of reform on back to, back to Syria. So I suppose, you know, compared to some other states, they look relatively good, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Turkey is, you know, unproblematically a good international citizen. Um. Any other questions? I guess maybe just about who um, who decides. I mean, because you said that in, within the the literature on good international citizenship, um, the focus is mainly on sort of Western liberal, mm. I guess, states. Um, and is that okay? So, is there an an abstract definition of what a good international citizenship looks like? Or is it that that's um, a reflection of you know people like Dunn and, and Wheeler and Linklater trying to hold their their kind of states to account as you know they're you know coming from liberal um, backgrounds? Does that make sense? Yeah, Do you see what I, I mean? So. Um, so I guess that I, these authors generally define good international citizenship in terms of um, kind of human rights, international law, and um, multilateralism. So I guess they're looking largely to what states have already agreed to and what they've signed up to and some of the authors kind of talk about good international citizenship as being kind of um, contingent on where international society is at at a given time if that makes sense mm -hmm. so you know you could have more sort of pluralist um, notions of good international citizenship which just take more into account ideas of self-determination or non-interference whereas you know if international society moves forward and becomes more solidarist, then that might generate a different set of, of principles. So Yeah, no that does that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What does it all mean in practice, in reality? Mm. So some states are good citizens, some states are bad citizens. So what? Is there any implication for a state if they're a bad citizen? Is there any motivation for a state to be a good citizen? Mm. Well the original um, people who tried to put together the idea of good international citizenship um, tried to s try to argue that um, there are kind of reputational benefits to being seen as a good international citizen so there's like the Blairite idea that um, values and interests merge and soft you know power, yeah. and soft power so it's you know so for example the former um, foreign minister of Australia Gareth Evans you know talked about good international citizenship as involving kind of um, you know good deeds, you know, that is part of sort of wider reciprocal networks with, with other states, which I guess some of the time, um, you know, might be true, but um, I wouldn't want to say that that's um, where the value of good international citizenship only comes from. You know, I think there's obviously value in acting well, regardless of the benefits that you might get from it. So, Because it's a difficult one, because in the terms of good citizenship, Turkey is taking more refugees from the region, it's taking more refugees from Europe back. But in terms of being a safe country, Turkey's not a safe country. Mm. Yes, yeah, so, so it's, it's pl playing a good role in terms of the society of states, but in terms of actually yeah. what it's doing. So mm. shooting Syrians yeah. at the border, building a wall, and trying to keep them in their own country, which is there being bombed, that's not a safe country for refugees to, mm. to be looked after. No freedom of the press, no access to the labour market, that's not a safe country. But in terms of good citizenship and refugee protection, well, they're doing more than other countries like the UK, for example. Yeah. So it's a, it's a difficult one. Mm. Next up was Kelly Staples and her paper, Contingent Cosmopolitanism and the Refugee Crisis. So um, so I gave a, a paper today. Um, 
it's taking my missed yours, James. It sounded um, like it would have been really um, helpful to me for, uh, for thinking through some of the issues. So again, um, my paper um, is concerned really with, I guess, the European response to the refugee crisis, whether you know, there's a, a big debate about the, the, the sense in which it is a crisis. So the European response, and what I wanted to try and do in the paper really, was identify um, responsibility, uh, begin to work towards how we might identify specific responsibilities in a very non-ideal way, okay, so not starting from um, an ideal framework, trying to um, develop an account which is not abstract, which is not ideal, which looks at um, a very social um, sense of responsibility. Um, and the main argument I try to make is that actually um, the EU um, as an institution doesn't have the authority which it requires to make um, and enact um, effective decisions of the kind that are really needed. Okay, so what's needed, um, and this came up in, um, in Clara's paper this morning, what's needed for a great many refugees is somewhere to go, somewhere else to go, to, to live. Um, and, and the EU has made decisions on that. We have... Um, a range of decisions we've gone through various iterations about relocation um, of refugees from arriving in Greece and Italy to other member states um, and we see that that um, has not happened at all okay and there are various reasons and, um, and Simon's paper um, this morning also gave us some insight into some of the difficulties or the practical difficulties so we have in, in theory um, in the EU an agreement to relocate 160,000 refugees from Greece and Italy um, and um, what we have in practice is, I wish I could find exact, I think it's 943, I think, <laughs> if someone's going to check, um, relocations. So that was at the last figures that were published that I had in March um, by the EU. So we have the decisions, but there's a big uh, problem in terms of um, whether the EU is an authoritative institution. And if it's not an authoritative institution with the authority to make those decisions, it becomes quite problematic, I think, to hold it responsible. So we have to look probably elsewhere for responsibility. Um, and quite clearly, um, states, the EU member states, um, have a, a big responsibility. They have the, the power, the authority to, you know, to, to relocate refugees. Um, and um, so that's where we need to focus our energies, I think. And, and we talked about this this morning. But there are various, you know, there's lots of criticisms that can legitimately be made of the EU, for sure, um, in terms of the way that it's handled um, this as well. And we're also to remember that the EU is not, you know, um, I don't know, a kind of um, a monolith, right? That there are differences of, um, of view um, within the EU. So the European Parliament has tended to advocate for a more, what we might call a more cosmopolitan um, approach. They've tended to talk more about common responsibility, whereas other um, EU bodies have talked much more clearly about the responsibility of Greece and Italy um, in respect of uh, the refugees that are arriving uh, in European um, into Europe. So. Um, perhaps I won't go too much into the um, kind of theoretical um, aspect of the paper, except to say that if we're going to try to answer questions about responsibility, we're going to need to look at the ability to make decisions, we're going to need to consider um, questions of authority, we're also going to want to look um, very much at the, the practices and the relationships um, within which these actors are, are situated. Um, and we can actually learn, I think, quite a lot from looking at theories of moral responsibility or the philosophy of moral responsibility, which can emphasise those intersubjective, those social dimensions, um, and can give us also a way of trying to 
improve responses to refugees in a very imperfect world, in a very non-ideal way, in what um, in, in the theory is often called a kind of embedded now, an embedded cosmopolitanism or um, a contingent cosmopolitanism. So it's a very um, incremental, imperfect way of improving responses. Um, and where I end up in the paper really is um, drawing on um, an approach by um, Strawson, which is, um, has been very influential in thinking about the philosophy of moral responsibility, although hasn't really, as far as I'm aware, been applied so much to institutions rather to individual persons. Um, so I end up looking at the, the vital importance, I think, of holding states responsible, of trying to make these arguments again and again, though they don't always, um, though they will often fall on deaf ears, that there are relationships that we have to these refugees which I mean that we must have, you know, we do have responsibilities towards them. So it has to be, it's a constructed sense of responsibility, um, which I think, you know, for my, to my mind is possibly the best, um, the best option available to us. So hmm. I'll leave it there, I think. <laughs> Thanks. So I, I guess it's actually, the more I thought about your paper, it's actually a fairly radical... A radical <laughs> conclusion, isn't it? Because you're basically saying that the EU is so incapable of making decisions, so we can't actually be held responsible for the failure of um, of uh, coordinating a refugee uh, response. So I, I think someone else actually said this earlier as well. But what does that kind of mean for the future of the EU? <laughs> yeah, it came up actually in one of I went to um, one of the um, there was a migration roundtable um, earlier in the day where people were talking about the sense in which. Okay, so we mentioned this earlier, the sense in which it is a crisis. It's definitely a crisis for the EU, I think, for the legitimacy of the EU, um, for the sense that there can be a common asylum policy to a problem that isn't um, doesn't affect states in a common way. So I think, yeah, I think that's a really good question, actually. Where you know, um, in terms of the the future of the EU, and somebody made the point um, earlier in this roundtable that actually um, the EU is continually undermining itself. So it's set on the one hand these kind of accession standards for the Western Balkan states, that they have to, you know, um, um, you know, conform to these, these certain standards, these kind of EU, you know, principles, but actually now we're very happy if they're willing to kind of, you know, shoulder the burden if they don't do so in a very particularly liberal way. Um, so, yeah, I think it does raise big questions for the, for the legitimacy of the EU. Um, yeah. Yeah. Simon. The, the EU's response as well to the to the refugee crisis in a certain way. I mean, I'm, I'm using the EU as the EU institutions and and the member states. In a way, it reflects as well the the true nature of the agreement relating to to free movement as well. So the true Schengen was presented as liberalisation of movement within the EU, a thing promoting freedom, but actually it's home of the largest database in the world, it's enormous data sharing across countries and increased security checks within countries but also on the external borders of the EU, so that definition of what's inside and outside. So actually the, the emphasis of the responsibility of the countries at the external borders, so Italy and Greece, not to let people in and not to let people move on, is just a continuation of what the main idea of Schengen was in the first place, which is an increase in security on the outside in order to have some type of movement on the inside. It just reveals what Schengen was always about. Mm. And it's that, there's a sort of central tension there, which we see in lots of places, which, um, you know, um, I, I kind of picked this up in, in Hannah Arendt's work, but this, this tension that there is between kind of, you know, cosmopolitanism and kind of inclusion within, and it, it always seems to entail a kind of exclusion, you know, without, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, yeah, I don't know, the concern with borders was always, that was always going to be, 
And that's one of the arguments that the um, Brexit campaigners are using now. Um, yeah. That if it wasn't for the the EU, we could accept lots more migrants from outside, which is probably not very likely. But on the other hand, there is a yeah. fairness, perhaps, aspect to it. Yeah. Don't know. I think you've mentioned Brexit. An important thing to highlight with Brexit as well is today the the, the Leave campaign has presented new posters just to illustrate the amount of migrants that have entered Europe and the threat that they pose to the UK if we remain within Europe. Calais, the camps in Calais were presented as an example of how migration in Europe is a threat to the UK. Whereas actually the UK isn't a part of any of these agreements anyway. The UK has borders on the French side of the channel, not on the British side of the channel, precisely because they're part of the EU. So actually being within the EU increases, in a sense, the security that you can have against letting people in that you don't necessarily want to be allowed in. You just have to trade it off with with a certain amount of free movement. So it is funny talking yeah, about Brexit yeah. in relation to the migration crisis because it's... Um, of course, the the UK has opt outs as well in lots of areas of yeah. um, so you know the UK is not involved at all in this um, relocation um, you know mm-hmm. scheme that I've been talking about. Yeah, I suppose my question is: Are there any grounds for being optimistic about the EU or <laughs> EU states being cosmopolitan at all? If we look at you know the the real possibility of of Brexit and the rise of nationalist parties across the EU, rather than embedded cosmopolitanism, are we looking at maybe cosmopolitanism that there is becoming disembedded or, Mm. you know, just being lost entirely? Adding to that, thinking of regionalisation within globalisation, can can regional integration or can globalisation go backwards? I mean, answer that. <laughs> well, just a small, a small couple of questions. Um, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not particularly optimistic. Um, honestly, it would, you know, I wish I could be more optimistic. I mean, I think um, the only source of optimism really is the work of lots of the kind of um, the NGOs and the grassroots activists and lots of the people on the ground that are, you know, doing doing their best um, to try to hold states responsible and to also provide, you know, what is really needed. Um, I'm trying to find some kind of more grounds for optimism. I mean, I think it's, it, it is a, a, an unescapable aspect of any kind of more embedded kind of pragmatic approach to world ethics is that it is contingent on, on, on politics, on so many, so many things. So while I'd like to be able to yeah, articulate a more um, confident kind of response, yeah, I'm not overly optimistic, I'm afraid. <laughs> And oh, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> That's like, to start with the um, no, I mean, I think I guess the other point to make on that is if you look at I'm looking a lot into the definition of crisis because there is all this discussion about where, in what sense it is a crisis, and you know, lots of people have argued that crises can be conditions of um, of change, right? You know, there's a, a kind of understanding of that. So you know, it's not impossible. I mean, I think the the underlying tension is becoming so I don't know. Um, the word I'm looking for, this kind of underlying tension that we've been talking about, I guess, between you know the demand for protection, and you talked about this as well, and kind of sovereignty, is it's it seems to be such a, a fundamental tension that I'm sure it must break. At some, there has to be something, I think, at some point. But whether it's in ten years or a hundred mm. years, I don't know. I don't see anything on the horizon. And last, we will hear from Simon McMahon and his paper "Europe's Migration Crisis and Its Responses: Examining the Interplay Between Formal and Informal Reception Dynamics." So the research I've been carrying about out is um, 
in related to two projects. One is the the MedMig project that I'm a part of, which is led by Heaven Crawley, Nando Segona, and Frank Duval. And we did 500 interviews with people who crossed the Mediterranean Sea by boat in 2015, many of them, most of them in Italy and Greece. And the other part of the project is um, looking at what happens to the people once they've arrived in Italy in particular, uh, and the situation that they find themselves in, particularly those who aren't necessarily within the formal reception system. So if you think back to 2015, there are 150,000 people more or less who arrived uh, by boat in Italy, and all of them entered into the asylum system, but not all of them applied for asylum. Certainly not all of them were granted asylum. And very few of them were removed or given any sort of deportation order. So there's a, an enormous amount, thousands of people, who are not given a particular status. Also, there's a large amount of people who choose to disappear and transit through Italy onto other countries. Um, throughout the year 2015, you also saw a decreasing rate of acceptance of of, of international protection um, permits so and, and an increase in the number of uh, applications for any sort of protection or asylum that were um, that were granted as well uh, that were denied so you have a process throughout 2015 where the the asylum and protection system in Italy became more strict less people were given a particular status but a large proportion of those people did not leave Italy uh, through through deportations but left through transit or stayed in Italy without particular resources of their own. So this is kind of lurking crisis of reception within Italy which is related to the production of irregularity. Um, so they're not necessarily illegal people because it's not illegal to leave a country, especially when that country is Libya, and apply for asylum in another country, such as in, in Italy. Um, but they are in an irregular status because they don't have necessarily an affirmed legal status of protection or, or asylum or, or a residence permit. So these people, when they stay in Italy, they're particularly vulnerable because they have to work in informal labour markets, they have to live in informal settlements, in squats, in, in um, churches, in mosques, etc. Um, and they're, they're what's called uh, deportable as well, so they can be removed from Italy, they can be given a deportation order, uh, which means that they're in a, a particularly kind of precarious situation. There are various pathways for them to enter into that status, so they can choose to leave the reception system if they wish, because the reception system is is designed to contain, to identify, and then to, to either remove them or to push them onto a, a status of... of, of of international protection, they might choose to re to leave that by their own by their own wish and 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 leave the reception system and leave Italy as well because they they they've heard that the se the system in Italy is very slow. They have personal networks elsewhere. They might have family that's moved on to another place. They might have never even thought that they were going to move to Italy in the first place. They don't consider Italy to be Europe. They want to leave, or they can move into these this irregular status because because of the actions of the people who are actually trying to control migration in the first place. So they might be given an expulsion order in order to free up space in what are very crowded and very busy reception centres. And then that expulsion order, within seven days, they have to leave Italy, but they're not, they're not actually physically removed. Uh, so they're left out and they have to find their own way. So many of these people are picked up by local activists, by local uh, other migrants and so on, and they're able to start working perhaps in the informal labour market or to find a place to live or to find a lawyer who is able to look after their case and to make sure that they do have a fair hearing 
Uh, many of them have escaped from situations of incredible violence in Libya, um, <coughs> in, in Niger and the other countries that they've come through, and, and a large proportion, majority of the people that we've interviewed uh, have escaped from, have been, have moved in the first place because of, of, of forced migration reasons, so they, some sort of persecution, some sort of violence, and so on. So they're people who've come through a lot, and they're, they often, um, they find themselves in a particularly difficult situation. What we find in, in general then is that th these efforts to control and contain and to identify and then to relocate people in Italy, which is a similar system which is now being implemented in Greece, and the relocation might be to other parts of Europe, it might be to other parts of the country, or it might be to remove them. This has kind of perverse consequences as well. The, the incessant need to control and to contain people doesn't align necessarily with their migration objectives and aspirations. Uh, an incapacity of the system to ho house everyone and to, to do so in the time frame that's necessary means that you're creating further problems down the line. Thank you. Um, I had a couple of questions that came up now. First, um, you talked even more before as well, obviously when you had more time, about the um, the large kind of informal reception uh, networks that exist. So you were talking about churches and mosques and previous and previous migrants and migrant networks. And uh, uh, I don't know if I missed something. Um, and and to me, that's that's really fascinating how that's created sort of, sort of uh, its own system. And how much I'm guessing that the Italian authorities are very aware of this. So how much are they relying on these informal receptions to some extent? If they are, in, if the capacity is kind of limited in their formal receptions, and and do they care about it? What do they, you know, what do they do about it? So I can't speak for exactly what's happening right now. But during 2015, there was a kind of an implicit acceptance among many people working for the Italian state that if people were coming into a system that was keeping them in trying to keep them contained for months and months instead of days and that there was not this capacity to house the people who were also coming next to make the journey and those people did not want to stay in Italy in the first place then you could let them move on um, and you have these transit hubs that would come up so in Rome you have various transit hubs you have squats and and cultural associations that would provide packs to people and would enable them they stay a few days and enable them to move on so one in Rome in particular um, had 32,000 people pass through during 2015 and there were also similar efforts in, in Milan as well at the central station in Milan that was set up for Syrian refugees that were passing through even though the second half of the year there were barely any Syrian refugees. Um, so it was kind of accepted but that's now caused a whole load of issues that for example the Austrian government has built a big fence along the Brenner Pass to try and stop uh, the possible movement of people from Italy into Austria, which is ironic because autumn of last year there were more people moving from Austria into Italy, having transited through the Balkan route, than there were moving from Italy up into into Austria. So it's kind of rich of the Austrian government to to build a fence now. Um, but yes, it did create kind of tensions between the countries. What's interesting about this development of um, of these centres, these hubs for the people who are transiting through, is that. In part, it's through the networks of the migrants themselves, so people like Eritrean community within Italy is well established and they have connections with people who are coming as well. People arrive with a piece of paper with a name, with a telephone number, and they kind of know where to go. But also it's these solidarity networks of, of Italian activist groups, of NGOs, of charities, and so on, that have actually seen that there's, some, there, there's a need that the state is not fulfilling, and they will step in to provide these things for the, for the people who need them. 
there was a report released as well a few months ago by Médecins Sans Frontières which mapped out these informal settlements as well. So some of the people in informal settlements, so squatting in houses in in Rome, for example, some of them up to about a thousand people, uh, or in the countryside in Foggia, which is in southern Italy, um, it mapped out how many places there were around the country. And it also found that many of the people had a legal status. They might have been given a, an, an asylum status. They might be refugees recognized by the state. They might have no status. They might have left Italy in the past and been sent back according to the Dublin, Dublin regulation and then decide to stay for a bit and then move out again. They go backwards and forwards six or seven times. Uh, and some people have been in Italy for many, many years. So in these kind of informal spaces, you have this incredible mixing mm. of people who are somehow out of the reception system, but trying to find their own way. Fascinating. Um, just another question I thought, you, you mentioned that at least a majority of the people that you talk to um, are uh, moved because of some form of forced um, migration reason. So um, it's maybe persecution or things you mentioned. So. Is there a, but not all of them actually apply for asylum, why not? It's complicated. It's complicated from the point of view of the researcher, firstly, to, to get into a situation where you're able to build trust with someone where they'll talk to you openly. Also because if people are avoiding being in the formal reception centres and you're there trying to find people to interview and mm. they're just not there, it's very difficult to do that research. But also it's complicated because they're coming on the boats with a certain expectation of what they're going to find. So the information that they pick up along the way, or that they're given before they arrive, is based on the information they're given of people who've already made the journey, that they pick up when they're in, in the ghettos in Libya, or when they're in Khartoum looking for a smuggler and so on. They talk to people, they pick things up along the way. Um, uh, so people who've come before will tell them that in Italy there is a very slow process. In Italy you're unlikely to have a fair uh, fair hearing or or a hearing within the time and that you can't get to work very soon because you're kept in these in these in this reception system and many of them want to start working because they might have families they need to look after back home they might be trying to reach other family members who've made the journey before or they might need to pay the person who facilitated the journey for them as well so lots of them avoid the system because they think the system isn't going to provide for them also there's a situation of many of the the Syrians, for example, that arrived in Sicily in the spring of last year, um, it's been reported that they were forcibly made to give their fingerprints. Um, so there was acts of violence against them. People who were asleep were fingerprinted. They were held and they were by force they had to give their fingerprints. And these were recorded on mobile phones that were then sent by Viber, sent by WhatsApp, sent by um, Skype and so on, back to people who were also thinking about making the journey. So if you've seen those videos, you come over and you know instantly you do not go into those formal reception system. You get out as soon as you can, otherwise they're going to force you to have your fingers done and then you have to stay in Italy until however long it takes. So in some of the, some of the refugee centres where you're supposed to be only a few days, people have been up there for months and months and up to 18 months, for example, without even having a commission hearing. So the mm. time can be very long, which if you're looking to start a new life and get settled, it's just not not the life that you were expecting to be. To finish our conversation, we discussed whether Europe really has a refugee crisis at all 
and what possible ways forward that we envisage. Maybe as a first question to have this question about whether this is a crisis. Not, we didn't talk about it so much in our panel, but it kind of came up before and it's quite interesting. So there are people saying we shouldn't call it a crisis because actually most migrants and refugees are not in Europe. But then other people are saying, no, we should call it a crisis because the way Europe is dealing or not dealing with it is kind of creating a crisis so what should we call it a crisis should we not call it a crisis what do you think um so the, the term the migration crisis europe's migration crisis which for some people is then europe's refugee crisis knows the whole discussion about migrants or refugees and so on um the term crisis has kind of entered into popular lingo into the press reporting and so on but also it's entered into the academic lingo partly because of the way that projects are funded so if you say it's a crisis it's urgent it needs to have something investigated quickly so you get funded to mm. do that but also because there is an aspect of crisis to it it just depends at which level you're talking about so the movement of people um to europe as i mentioned earlier today um we know the routes that people have taken we know what nationalities they are we know for many of them the reasons why they're migrating so we know why Syrians are coming to Europe we know why Iraqis are coming to Europe we know why Afghans are coming to Europe we know why Eritreans leave Eritrea um, and these routes are not particularly new the Syrian conflict has been going on for I think five years now Eritrea has not been a democracy for many many years and so on so the routes aren't new we know who the people are who are moving we know why they're moving so it's not a crisis of migration what it is is a crisis of what happens when they arrive at Europe, the fact that they're reaching Europe, um, and a crisis of the reception that we have for them and whether we're suitably equipped to to respond or willing to become suitably equipped to respond to them. It's a political crisis as well because there is populist parties across Europe, uh, backlash against migration, backlash against providing protection for refugees, and an unwillingness to, to share the burden, if you will, across European member states. And there's a humanitarian crisis which... This time last year, we thought the humanitarian crisis was people dying at sea. Now it seems to be that the humanitarian crisis might well be the people who are living in the Olympic Stadium in Athens, for example, the people who were living in the Domeni without any sort of services, mm. who are now in Europe and they're stuck. So there's a multidimensional crisis and it occurs in different levels in different ways. But So you can't get away from the fact that there is a crisis. But what you call a crisis depends on how you respond to it as well. So I think we should just be clear about what we're talking about when we use the word crisis. Mm. Do you all agree? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the point I was going to make was just saying, you know, we need to talk about crisis for whom, um, which I guess you, you've already covered in a way. Um, and I thought that one way of distinguishing between different senses of crisis is one is just to see a crisis as like an intensely difficult situation. And you know, for the refugees who are making the journeys and in the reception conditions that you described, um, Simon, I think it fits the definition of a crisis there. But then another meaning of the word crisis could be, you know, um, a turning point or a situation that creates the need for a difficult decision to be made. And, the, and then I think it's a political crisis for um, the EU, given that, you know, it's pronounced these quite... Um, ambitious cosmopolitan ideals of human rights and you know is it going to live up to them or not so it kind of creates a sort of political decision but obviously these nuances are going to be completely lost when we just you know 
engage in the media and talk about a crisis and I think the term as a whole has become quite devalued so um, you know in academic discussion when we can distinguish between different senses I think we can call it a crisis but out there in the you know, <laughs> engaging with the wider world I think we should just avoid it. Yeah I guess the way it's used in, in the media then if you say who's your crisis for then it's a crisis for Europe, that's how people perceive it, it's a, cr a crisis for the people living here having mm. to deal with this um, issue, perhaps. There's another thing which is the, the politics of naming it a crisis, because if it's a crisis then it, it demands an urgent response to it as well. So in Italy in 2011 when nearly 63,000 people arrived throughout the year by boat across the sea, that was called an emergency, it was called a crisis. Um, at the beginning of the Arab Spring, mostly people from Tunisia, Libya and so on. Um, and the response of the government was to say, this is an emergency, and this is a crisis, so we need to have emergency measures we need, uh, which need to be carried out by the Protezione um, Civile, which is like the, the, the civil protection. So it's centralised, given by Ministry of the Interior, you can give out, you can access emergency funds, you can circumvent certain checks and balances and controls about the quality of the services that you're giving or the amount of protection you're giving to certain people. So it enables you to actually respond quickly but also to put people in, in situations that you might not be able to if, if you were going through a normal process. So today, because it's an emergency, urgency, last year there was a need for an, uh, an expansion of the number of places in reception centres for Italy. Grants were given without going through public consultation processes or, 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 or applications to people to create temporary reception centres in places that were farms, abandoned hotels and so on, which are miles out in the countryside and run by people who don't always have an experience of working with refugees or working with migrants or the complexities that the people who they're housing uh, have in that kind of psychological experiences and so on or whatever. A lot of those places are also not checked, they're not investigated, they're not controlled as appropriately as they would be if they were given through a proper kind of tendering process with all of that built into it and that means that actually people are not necessarily finding themselves in an appropriate protection system either so by naming it a crisis it allows you to circumvent certain controls certain checks and balances and have an emergency response which again further down the line it can create a whole load of problems but at this moment it enables you to act very quickly. I mean, that's certainly what's happened in Sweden. There, all the new restrictions that were rolled out, um, well, this year and, and, and last year, were um, were framed as emergency measures. But they and as temporary measures, quite a lot of them. But they are becoming permanent, so they're all extended. But but the government um, was acting in almost a state of panic. Um, and um, of course there were a lot of refugees coming to Sweden but it was also this framing of it as, as a crisis that I guess allowed um, uh, allowed all these emergency uh, measures that were really really controversial mm -hmm. uh, but, but to be kind of pushed through quite quickly as temporary measures now becoming permanent n n more or less permanent this is the only other thing I'd want to add on crisis really is the extent which I think it does I think when you know we see the just the scale of suffering the humanitarian crisis or whatever you want to call it you know the scale of suffering and and death which is as 
just seems to be an unending horror at the moment. I think it does reflect a, a sort of a much deeper crisis of international politics, actually, and a crisis of responsibility. In that, you know, we we know what is needed, and we can't, we cannot seem to get there. It's it's just a, an absolute fundamental crisis in that sense. I think of world politics, the kind of thing that cosmopolitanism is trying to, to get to grips with. Um, yeah, yeah, not very cheery. No, <laughs> no but maybe. Or maybe just moving on from that point to finish um uh, it's a bit gloomy and uh, and there is clearly an inability to sort of coordinate and cooperate and uh, but is there any way forward like what do you see as perhaps uh, what could happen what should happen what might not happen <laughs> what do you think anyone <laughs> um, <laughs> well i think Jinx? it's like it's like um Kelly says everybody knows what should happen it's just doing it and you know the lack of complete lack of political will is not encouraging whatsoever I think that I mean particular moments like you know Island Kurdi being washed off on a, on a beach can produce you know very short-term spurts of public opinion and I you know I saw that at the time as kind of an, a potential opening mm. for leading towards a, a more inclusive yeah. kind of stance but then I guess predictably in retrospect it wasn't it wasn't going to last so there's a question of how do you make those kind of ad hoc responses more sustainable um, over time and I mean in a, in, in a country like the UK I just see politicians and the, and the media just reinforcing each other in the, the narratives that they use so you know a politician probably is just going to have to have the courage at some point to break that cycle and take leadership on the issue and be prepared to take a short-term political backlash for saying for making a statement that we need to um, act in more inclusive ways because otherwise um, we're just going to go round and round with you know the media and politicians just mimicking each other and you know nothing will change. And the other thing I think, and this came up, you mentioned this earlier, I think is to see, um, to try and see it as a bigger picture and perhaps to, as you said, so to get away from the notion of crisis because this is just a, a very normal aspect of world politics. Now, this is, migration has been a normal aspect of, you know, forever. Um, and they're just in a, you know, protracted conflict, protracted displacement. Um, what am I trying to say? Just the, the fact that I think we need to... Um, perhaps think more about the relationship between our inability to, to deal with conflicts, to, to deal with displacement, and yeah. um, to try and understand that a bit more. And I don't know, to, yeah, someone made a point in one of the earlier panels that we ought to, we need to kind of demonstrate the relationship between this, between what, what we're doing militarily in parts of the world or failing to do, and this this reality of, of migration. And I think um, there is a need to put things in in perspective, so of the millions of displaced people around the world, only a small proportion of the people who are making their way to to Europe. Not everybody's coming to Europe. The the largest refugee uh, camps in the world are not the ones in Europe. They're the ones in in the global south. Um, also, as part of our research, so through the interviews that we've been doing, we we've seen that many many of the people that are making it to Europe are travelling regionally before they come here and they have fragmented journeys with several stops along the way. So if you're travelling from Gambia, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, you don't often get on a flight, a, a, a journey that's leading you directly to Italy. You're travelling to Senegal or you're travelling to Mali on a, on a bus because migration in that part of the world is much easier than it is in, in this part of the world. You go by Rainbow Bus Company. 
you move on to Nija when you realize you can't stay in Mali and in Nija there's nothing and you, you get the, the truck through the desert, three days through the desert into Libya which is a war zone and so on and you get the, the journey through, through there it's broken up over time so people take months if not years um, and it gets progressively more violent and more deadly the closer they get to Europe as well so we, I think to understand why people are coming to Europe you need to look back through that chain at what the experiences and the motivations are in the different places where they stop and why they feel like they can't stay there and move on they move on and also to assume that not all migration is bad so at the moment the externalization of controls and, and the Marshall Plan for Africa so investment in Africa to try and stop people from moving is misplaced and we shouldn't just criti criticize investment in Africa investment in Africa can be a very good thing but when it's in intended just to stop people from moving it's a bad thing because movement can be to release pressure in some places or to enable people to reach safety or to have better lives and so on so yeah seeing the bigger picture and what happens with to people before they reach Europe uh, is is part of the the steps that are needed and then yeah uh, in Europe uh, uh, an attempt to not just close the door um, to the people who need it would be would be quite nice to find out more about James Suters Kelly Staples and Simon McMahon's research and to listen to previous episodes please visit our website talkingmigration.com that was all for this time thank you for listening